Good morning. Welcome to July 3rd, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, not to be confused with the newly elected mayor of Mexico City, Claudia Scheinbaum. And I thought important to take note that the temps are high in most places in the U.S. Eyes on Burlington, Vermont, scoring record high lows. Today we'll have some real fireworks. UCI chemistry professors Dr. Junhee Lee and Dr. Ara Apkarian will blow our minds with their nano, hyper nano, single molecule electromechanics sensor, a heady technology with consequential applications. Then in the second segment, Dallas, Augustine and Mahan Naim, UCI students with the Orange County Needle Exchange Program soldier on while our Orange County Board of Supervisors and other civic leaders turn their backs on a best practice public health program. We'll be right back after a station break. Thank you, everyone, for staying tuned. Welcome back. My guests for this portion of the hour are UCI chemistry professors, Dr. Junhee Lee and Dr. Ara Apkarian with some groundbreaking research on mechanical electromagnetic systems processing on the atomic level, which offers consequential application in our every day, our every minute application. They are both researchers at UCI's chemistry at the space Time Limit Center, Castle Center, we might say for shorthand, and National Science Foundation Center for Chemical Innovation Program, producing transformative research, leading innovation, and attract broad scientific and public interest. That's us. These centers collaborate with researchers from industry, government laboratories, and international organizations, broadening participation of underrepresented groups. Yahoo. Dr. Juni Lee, the lead researcher, focuses inter his interest on such delights as spin-polarized scanning tunneling microscopy, inelastic electron tunneling spectroscopy, single-molecule photon emission spectroscopy, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy, it's easy for me to say, scanning electron microscope, low-energy electron diffraction, finite element analysis, Ultra-fast, that's the femtosecond laser, optics, tip-enhanced Raman spectroscopy, and computational chemistry. He was awarded the National Research and Development Project for Nanoscience and Technology Fellowship, Ministry of Science and Technology, Korea, and uh, I'm not sure what, the BK21 Fellowship at Yonsei University, Newport Travel Award. He holds a patent on rolling the drums here, electrochemical polishing apparatuses for fabricating sharp metal tips, which have come in handy with some of the work he's going to talk about. He completed his bachelor's of science, master's of science, and PhD in physics at Yonsei University in Seoul, Korea. My second guest is Dr. Ara Abkarian, the director of the Castle Center, focuses his research on photophysics and ultra-fast molecular and quantum dynamics in condensed matter. His work combining experiment and theory on a wide range of topics has appeared in some 200 publications. He's organized more than 30 scientific conferences and workshops in topics ranging from photophysics 
low temperature chemistry and physics, condensed phase photodynamics. You may have seen him on the PBS NewsHour back in 2014 with the hula hoop inside the molecule motif. Arb Karin is a fellow of the American, I don't know what the APS stands for. American Physical Society. Uh, physical Society. And I'm gonna, that physics is going to come right back up in a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a, a foreign member of the National Academy of Sciences of Armenia and has been recognized with awards in teaching, service, and research, including the Dreyfus Award, Sloan Fellowship, Humboldt Prize, UCI Distinguished Faculty Award for Teaching, USC Distinguished Alumnus Award, Charles Bennett Award, the American Chemistry Society, I think that's what the ACS award, in experimental physical chemistry and an honorary doctorate from the University of a beautiful town in Finland, Uvalaskula. He has served as a visiting professor at Université Paris-Sud, Free University of Berlin, Instituto Superior de Ciencias y Tecnologías Nucleares de Cuba, and Université Paul Sabatier, Toulouse, France. His concerns extend into being politically engaged and effective, for which I give him my very own award. Ara completed his Bachelor's of Science at USC and his PhD from Northwestern in Chemistry, followed by a postdoc at Cornell and then his appointment to the UCI Chemistry faculty in 1983. Stay with us on today's very technical topic. Its applications are interesting and consequential. Out this month... None of us have to be killed at this interview because it has been published. The title is Microscopy with a Single Molecule Scanning Electrometer. Both gentlemen join me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jonhee Lee and Ara Apkarian. Good morning, Claudia. Morning. Thank Good you. M- All right. Nice. We had Ara first and Jonhee was the second voice. Well, in a little notice lecture at the time in December 1959, Physicist and rock star Richard Feynman anticipated this process that's going to come up, delivered in his lecture entitled, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, soaked in irony, soaked soaked deeply. So asking in this question, then, what would happen if we could arrange the atoms one by one the way we want them? So I don't know. I mean, there were a lot of people that weren't really aware of that, but is that something that sort of hovers over you and inspires or sort of challenges you and you, you consider what he laid out in the gauntlet in 59. Johnny Lee? Yes, yeah. It is, it's your conscious sort of connection. Mm-hmm. So, that, and Ara, did you want to, is it something that you sometimes go back to uh, as a connection? starting point, uh, Claudia. That's exactly where we are. Uh, engineering atoms is the stage that we are in in chemistry. But to be able to engineer them, arrange them in order to make devices, first you have to be able to see them. Um, So some of the technologies that we are advancing is the ability to see atom by atom inside molecules, the arrangements, the fields, their properties, and all of the electrical properties that one would like to know in order to design, say, atomistically engineered electrical circuits. Okay, so seeing is one thing and then like, Moving them around, stacking them, manipulating them as the other. So, and um, anatomically precise fabrication, would you allow that this discovery, this research is part physics, part chemistry, and part engineering, giving the principle of the shape molecules and seeing the forces that you have there? 
Yes, we are at the interface of chemistry and physics, of course. And engineering. And engineering what, I mean, do you call is, it that? Or uh, is that just too, that's a little too crude an instrument? Oh, uh, it. Uh, we are approaching that application side okay. uh, to be included in the category of engineering. Okay, that's yeah. where when you cross basic into applied, that's when it becomes engineering. Yes. Are, are there are there engineers intrigued by what you're doing? I believe so. I have a, a friend in the industry. Uh, in that, industry, not right. in academia. Okay. Yeah, that he uh, works in this specific semiconductor business. And then he was thrilled to hear about this device uh, that we kind of invented. So when did you bring him? I mean, the publication came out last month. At la right. It was June. But did, so where did he get first aware of this? Uh, I just told him. <laughs> Over like, I mean, months uh, before? Uh, uh, or Through the uh, private communications. Okay. A few months ago. That's how it works. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, Ara. So let me interject. <clears throat> we work in this castle center that you mentioned already. Yes. And the center has in it membership from physics, chemistry, and engineering. We have engineer fac engineering faculty within the center. Okay. And engineering, you have to recognize at this stage, is basically applied science. And the very applied fundamental science discoveries that we are making are being applied. So there are instruments being built on principles that we are now inventing or playing with. So engineering is very much part of what we do. And in fact, the center has students, faculty, postdocs from all divisions, engineering, physics, chemistry, theory, uh, application, experiment, etc. Wow. All right. All hands on deck, literally. Well, for those of us, the many, who wouldn't know where to start with this inordinately high-level complexity, tell us first what an electrometer and a, or a, a voltmeter, what they are, and what it, what it was driving on a larger scale in a larger model before we got to this atomic level. It must have been out there looking at other things that were bigger. Yes. And you uh, had to make a leap to the atom. I, I can just start yes. the discussion, I guess. The electrometer is a device that measures charges, which is very elementary information. And so, uh, uh, and the voltmeter is, of course, the derived uh, quantity from the charge that a charge produces the electrical potential. And then if you probe two points that find the differences that becomes the voltage and in large scale uh, these electricians use uh, the device called a multimeter that they measure uh, current through a certain device or resistance and then derive the voltage out of it uh, in our case we miniaturized that uh, function uh, down to a single a single molecule scale. Was that kind of like a jet propulsion laboratory? You like you, just, you launch something landed on another celestial body. Was it was it kind of like that? Yeah, we feel like that. And in fact, uh, I mean, not really. I want the <laughs> excitement to be palpable in this interview. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So, yes, Ara. Oh, let me say something about voltage. With Since you, your audience high may, may, uh, So voltage is the potential for electrons to flow. Flow of electrons is current. All circuitry is based on flowing current. So an electron that has high potential will go from high potential to low potential, as people do. <coughs> and that is essentially measured in, in units of volts. So knowing the voltage across a molecule tells you how electrons will flow across it, for example. And to be able to do that measurement on an atomistic basis is the breakthrough that we are talking about. So 
our electrometer is made of just two atoms. <gasps> That's the smallest <laughs> molecule you can make. So there are no moving parts, only a diatomic molecule, two atom molecule, which oscillates all the time. So by watching the frequency of that's the why the ultra fast in your expertise is really that's like part of the play here. Indeed, the, the character in the play, the period of oscillation, the bond that oscillates is something like ten to the fourteen times per second. That's a ridiculously uh, fast uh, oscillation. We use that information in order to measure the voltages across molecules, near molecules, and between molecules. And this is sort of the ultimate limit, if you like, in the miniaturization of electronics. So you were talking about manipulation earlier. So how, I mean, it, 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 there's not only the getting the right scopes to so you can you can see what's going on. You're now, you're having to manipulate the, in this nano model. How do you... I mean, this is this takes years of getting how to get it, and I, so what? What's this manipulation part element all about? Oh, June, he can move any atom, any molecule. You around. can. Sure. You yeah. don't. Do you wear a cape in the lab? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So we just talked about how big this breakthrough was, and so wh let's. I mean, just to get an idea of the talent involved too. So, how large is your research team to work on this? Currently, we are three people, and then uh, Professor R. I. Karian is directing the research. So we currently now uh, three PhDs working on this single project. But this work was done by mainly a former grad student, uh, including myself, and then uh, not two grad students, and then uh, I was the lead researcher, and then of course Ara is the the corresponding author of this paper. Yeah. Okay, so. One thing Ara talks about in a um, one of his dog and ponies, it, he he asks the question, and I ask him to to answer his question, is what makes a good catalyst, what makes a good photocell, a good photovoltaic, because this is what's this is all what the reduction is is getting using those end products. So that's the <coughs> very chemical application of single molecule chemistry or single mo molecule manipulations and observations. Um, it's a fascinating thing. Okay. Almost all chemicals are produced by catalytic processes. That's a mouthful. Uh, basically, we don't quite understand exactly how it works. There are metals involved, um, there are uh, oxides involved, and molecules involved in the catalysis. And as it turns out, as in um, society, it turns out that the outliers of an ensemble, a collection of molecules, really do all the work. Oh, outliers I, I, that are that's a great analogy. So outliers uh, is what we're after. To be able to see the outliers, you have to see the single molecule, because each molecule will behave slightly differently based on its environment. And that's just too hard to measure using buckets and beakers and solutions as the old chemistry would do. Now you have to go and see exactly the environment of a molecule, why it works, how it works, in order to essentially improve and design the catalyst of the future. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guests today are Ara Epkarian and Dr. Junhee Lee, and they are chemistry faculty that have this breakthrough with this nanotechnology that's getting down to the atomic level. And we are, folks, stay tuned because we are getting to application of where this all can have huge, well, we'll we're going to talk about that because it reduces the size of the mechanisms 
then well let me let me go to the Moore's law Moore's rule first and find out is this the end of the line is this the saturation point it doesn't get smaller than this level that Moore's laws otherwise said it we can keep reducing the size and increasing capacity of an electronic device in order to go beyond two atoms one has to completely break the technology so you have to be subatomic or some other technology which is far far a, a major leap in the case of molecular science, molecular matter, basically the smallest unit will be one molecule, and the smallest molecule is two atoms. That's why we are quite excited in that it's a big leap to the ultimate limit of what we can imagine uh, molecular matter to deliver in terms of a sensor, a detector, a device. And, you know, the Moore's Law you mentioned, let me make a connection. Please, that's what we're... Uh, yeah. Uh, essentially, the cell phone that's in your pocket has a lot of sensors in it. It has accelerometers, it has voltmeters, it has electrometers, it has touch sensors, pressure sensors, and these are all miniaturized, what we call MEMS, Microelectromechanical Systems. The name is because of the scale, a micron. One micron is one one hundredth the thickness of your hair. Okay. That's where the technology is, and you realize the miniaturization is what's making all of this functionality of your cell phone. Now, the two-atom electrometer is a sensor. Again, it's a force sensor, voltage sensor, field sensor, and can be used for different applications. But it happens to be now 10,000 times smaller than the one micron scale. We are in the angstrom scale, one atom scale. So that leap is the ultimate direction, the Moore's law direction, if you like, where the technology is headed in MEMS. So we have exceeded the NEMS, which would be nano-electromechanical systems. We Just have MEMS. Single-molecule electromechanical systems. So we, I think we're going to stick a name to it. SMEMS. SMEMS. Single-molecule electromechanical systems. Okay. <laughs> it, is a, it is a real mouthful, and, but it's just staggering. I, I mean, you, we're, we're not splitting hairs. We're splitting molecules to get to that. And if we weren't doing radio, we, were, we had some fancy television kind of screen. We could all look at what you see through those elaborate scopes where not, I mean, there's, well, let's talk about it. Like, there's the hula hoop movement. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that was what was in the, the, the PBS right. uh, 2014 interview. Right. So it is the hula hoop movement is fascinating. It has to do with the motion of an electron due to the vibrational skeletal motion of a molecule. The scales are very similar. A molecular skeleton will shake of the order of uh, 0.01 angstrom, it's a tiny amount, while an electron will orbit because of that motion on a scale of about 10 angstrom. So that's the scale of the waist shaking of a person versus the hula hoop range as it goes around. The same thing happens in molecules, the same motion dynamics, and we can see that. So we've recorded that for the first time with Junhee multiple years when ago. That, w that was before 2014. That's how you could talk about it then. That was so that so you knew ago. you were going to split the, those tiny, tiny elements, you right. were going to split, you were headed that way. You knew before. When you saw the hula hoop, you knew you were going to head where you are now? Oh, oh this is a major campaign, right? The okay. center of um, chemistry at the space-time limit has had a 10-year run now. And the vision, obviously, is what it was based on. That was articulated more than 10 years ago. And we are just now reaching some of the or original lofty ideas that we had. They're becoming reality just now. 
So it's been a 10-year run with uh, about a dozen faculty members from five different campuses, universities, 40 to 50 research scientists working on it at any given time. Uh, and there are quite a few breakthroughs, so this is one of several. So there's all these sort of aspects of the research, and we were talking about the applied part. And um, so I'd, I'd like to have you... Let's just let your minds go as far as they will. Um, when I first I spoke with Ara, and in sort of as an inspiration, as a launching of having this interview arranged, the idea was that my, or, or our cell phones, with all their functionalities, they could be driven by a much, much smaller, meet, like you said, the voltmeter that's in there. So how, what consequentially changes, and I mean, first we have to be able to manufacture those voltmeters to that scale, that size, not the scale. That's a different uh, concept. So uh, how would it change the way the, the, not just the manufacturing, but the kind of the, the waste stream that from, you know, the extraction to the, the discarding of a, a cell phone when people no longer use theirs. What, what, what changes with this miniaturized kind of driver in the phone? Johnny Lee? I want to see this from a slightly different perspective. Well, maybe, that's maybe, why you're here. Yeah, maybe I want to zoom out a little bit. So the uh, rather than the immediate application of miniaturization, we may improve in at the production stage of these small devices or miniaturized small devices inside the cell phone. So they, the semiconductor companies, they grow or inscribe these small transistors uh, uh, these um, they uh, uh, grow this on a so-called uh, semi the silicon uh, wafers, and then they have many defects. Uh, means they so have small. a charge traps. Here is a charge comes in, so they cause problems and make devices malfunction, and their yield their success rate of uh, good production goes down because of those small defects. We're talking about the manufacturing, not the op not the user using it. Uh, but it, it, this directly applies to, in the end, influences the final users. Okay. So if, if they produce bad chips, the small devices that go into the cell phones, they will eventually malfunction. So we want to avoid that. And then this small molecule, single molecule electrometer can improve uh, and find out, point out these small defects, and then roll out at the production stage. And so it will improve the quality of the devices. Yeah. So as, as always, Junhee is the sober one, and he's telling you about the immediate application. Mm -hmm. The immediate application of the uh, electrometer that we have would be to check out, to investigate, and uh, process essentially atomistically engineered semiconductor structures. Uh, the device sizes now are going down to the size of 100 atoms, 10 atoms. And there is no uh, electrometer or multimeter or voltmeter to actually measure what you make. So probably the immediate application of what we have is going to be in fabs, manufacturing semiconductor wafers and doing inspection and analysis to find faults and defects. Okay. But I have to have the 
flightier approach to it as opposed to Junhees. And you know, ultimately, we're talking about miniaturizing the entire functionality of a computer, a cell phone, a communication device to the size of molecules. And then you can't put it in your pocket. Right? It has to be wired directly into your nerves, into your brain. So there will be a, a direct connection in your maybe ear to your the earlobe, phone yeah. and the uh, music will be coming streaming in there and your thoughts are going to be the method of communicating with your device. That's probably not so far-fetched given the advances we have in connecting electricity to biology, right? That interface is now open. Well, so that miniaturization has a kind of invasive quality to it. If you can't, if it's so small, it's it could be anywhere. It could be. And that's a problem. Uh, that may be a problem. Science can always be abused, or it can be a tremendous advantage, right? We talk about ubiquitous computing everywhere. Um, any operation you do would be assisted by electronics and devices, and the size and the miniaturization is headed directly to the single molecule limit. We've really raced through all of this that I was wanting, to, but th we need to go back, and let's have you unpackage even in greater detail <laughs> some of the some of these features so like what you see when you're looking when you're doing the most f uh, definitive you the most uh, fine-tuned scope describe for our listening audience what you're looking at and when I mean, the hula hoop is a it's an, a dynamic but there's just visually what else that layer of the molecule and how the atoms are sort of responding in, in that surface that you can see on your on your screen. It requires many stages of optimizations. So what we do is we put a lot of effort on polishing a very sharp silver needle. This is the With key what? ingredient. What do you what's a, what, how do you polish something that small? We use uh, chemistry. With la a laser itself? This is the production stage of the tip. So we we call this chemical etching. So okay. it's like pencil sharpening. So we pencil sharpen using some chemical solutions first. And then uh, we finalize that with the uh, neon ions. And uh, we can atomically terminate this very sharp cone needle. And we bring it to a metallic surface, keep it very close. Uh, we usually keep at the Angstrom scale. And then the molecule we look at is going to be interrogated under this very sharp needle. And there, finally, after this uh And how long is this steps. taking? Does it like take about a, a couple of days to get it set up? or It can take months. Mo it take depends. months to set yeah, it all up. Right, to, to get that, uh, finally get there. Wow. And then, uh, finally, we focus the light as tight as we possible. And that and then, also takes... Uh, like that take that, that can take a few hours, yes. Okay. <laughs> and then now the tip does the magic. So eventually there is a limit that we can focus. Sure, uh, but sure. then in order this to work, the tip has to do the magic that eventually it focuses the, focuses the light down to the single at atomic scale. And the atom is focusing all the light. We confine the light to atomic size. And that... Focusing a it. light to atomic size. Right. This sounds a bit ridiculous, but that's it, happening. It yeah. does. It's yeah. it's just. Yeah. So when you f when when was the first time you saw an atom? What when what what date was that? 
I think that uh, started working magically at the beginning of uh, was it last year? Probably yes, 2017 January. Was it a, was it a little noisy in the lab when that you first saw it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we were like, just I wow. guess lucky. That was accidental. Uh, okay, and that's, uh, that's another part. Yeah. Outliers like what R is talking about, and mm-hmm. accidents mm-hmm. that create the randomness of of adjusting everything. Finally, all everything's lined up, and there's the atom. Mm-hmm. If I was in that lab, I would give it, give that atom a name or something like that. Kara, yeah. yes. That's the name. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I don't. That's not it. I've got a mayor in Mexico City with my name. That's, that's, I, I'm set. No, I, I need, no, people need to do a lot of work before they get associated with that. Same thing with all those, those galaxy and planets and everything, people, stars and all that. So, well, this is really, really extraordinary. And keep, uh, we have an open door for when you would like to talk about some of these exciting things that are happening at Castle Center, because it's, this is this is your community radio platform to keep bringing that forward. So, I want to thank my guest today, that is um, UCI chemistry professors Dr. Junhee Lee and Dr. Abkarian, who are the uh, with the, talking about their breakthrough that can be summarized as their development of the world's smallest electrochemical sensor. The application that we've talked about that could be with the the microelectronics that we're all using. So I'm going to queue up here. I want everybody to pay close attention as uh, we go out and bring up our next guest. This is a parody of a well-known theme from a well-known film. Please enjoy. Thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show. Thank you for staying tuned, everybody. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guests for this portion of the show are Dallas Augustine and Mahan Naim, uh, KUCI UCI students with the Orange County Needle Exchange Program. The program at the moment has been put on hold. A little bit about both of my guests. Dallas Augustine is a member of the Board of Directors for the Orange County Needle Exchange Program. She completed her undergraduate degree at New York University and is currently a doctoral candidate in UCI's Department of Criminology and Law and Society at the Socialist College School, where her work centers around prison punishment, reentry, uh, and reentry there. Between her academic work and her work with the exchange, Dallas works to improve the lives of formerly incarcerated people, including those dealing with addiction and homelessness. My second guest is Mahan Naim, a member of the steering committee for the Orange County Needle Exchange Program. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree from UCI's Department of Biochemical Engineering. He's also currently applying to medical school in hopes of focusing on social causes of disease. A saint. So both of them are, they both joined me in studio. More great talent filling KUCI station. Like, this is why I named it this show. This is what it is. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dallas Augustine and Mahan Naim. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. So let's talk first. Uh, what does the program do, in fact? 
And what are the range of services that you offered before you had to close? Yeah, so the needle exchange is grounded in the concept of harm reduction. Um, and so that's the most important thing to think about. So what harm reduction does is it meets people where they're at and attempts to reduce harm in the meantime. Um, so we offer a variety of services, including we safely dispose of used syringes. We give out clean, sterile syringes in exchange, as well as other sterile injection supplies. And then um, we also give out safer sex supplies, um, provided on-site HIV and hep C testing. Um, and we partnered with an organization that gave out naloxone, which is the um, opiate overdose reversing agent. Oh, I was going to ask about that. So that's a part of the uh, the program? It is, yes. Oh, that's yeah. full, a full complement of that then. Okay. So, um, and there's there's a screening and there's referring and there's all this kind of part going on. I'm not sure you mentioned that while I was momentarily diverted. You're right. Actually, I failed to mention that we also um, do give out referrals to outside services. So everything from from like rehab and drug treatment to also um, housing, food, like legal aid when needed, the whole gamut of anything people could possibly need. Okay. So I want to know... This sort of partly fits the theme of what we do every week around here on Ask a Leader. So what, how did you first get involved? How did this whole dance start with you all? So um, for me, two of my best friends that are also uh, members of the board um, and the steering committee are also in the criminology department. And they're very involved in, or their research centers around um, the drug war and drug policy and general criminalization criminalization of drug use. And so they heard about the exchange and got involved and instantly were incredibly impacted by it. And so I wanted to be part of the fun as well and then start volunteering and then very quickly fell in love with the organization and wanted to get more involved and become leadership. And here we are two years later. Mahan, um, your story. So. Uh, as an undergrad at UCI, I was president of the Iranian Student Union, and in doing that during Trump's presidency, there was a lot of social activism that was going on, and there was a Peace Week panel that um, a medical student who was also uh, part of the leadership at Orange County Needle Exchange was on that panel with me, and we started talking about oh. how to make progress in the eras of Trump, how to combat racism and social stigma, and we really started to understand that we had similar views and she gave me her business card at the end and on the business card was the Orange County Needle Exchange program. I looked it up, immediately fell in love, started volunteering, met Dallas the first day and the rest is history. So the adage about 80 something percent of life is showing up. This is this corroborates it beautifully. It was it was a totally unforeseen outcome. Absolutely. So but so excellent. That's I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think I speak for both of us that um, probably showed up expecting to volunteer maybe once every couple months, and now it's half of my life. Um, it's a it's a complete yeah. second full time job, but that is entirely volunteer. But it's a passion. Um, so yeah, it's all showing up. Yeah. So here's your here's your sort of big chance here to talk about what you know we can dispel some have you dispel some myths it seems like needle exchange projects they're easy to trash and the hard work is educating people about that so what are what are the things when people hear about your undertaking and they then you have to say but really seriously this this is really uh, what's going on yeah one of 
the things we hear most frequently is um, people believe that needle exchanges increase drug use and that we're enabling drug use when in fact all the research <laughs> unanimously shows that that is not the case. Needle exchanges do not increase drug use and actually through providing a, a community and a social support network can help people successfully get through rehab and get clean on their terms um, instead of trying to coerce people into to getting clean and then having them failing and not having a support network. So needle exchanges actually contribute to rehabilitation. I would also say that we hear all the time that by giving people syringes, you are fueling their drug addiction, but syringes are not an addictive substance. Heroin is an addictive substance. We do not provide heroin. People have access to that regardless. We just mitigate the potential negatives of heroin use that don't have to be there. What I mean by that is you may be using heroin and no one knows that heroin is bad for you more than the person who is addicted to it. So we just limit the risk of infectious disease to both the people who are injecting drugs and the broader community. And that I would take it to another point, which is we hear all the time that syringes are being littered because of the needle exchange. Well, we take in more needles than we gave out routinely at the end of our operation. You're dealing with, you are the waste stream engineers of this whole show. Yeah, we Taking them out of there instead of them laying around in folks fill in the blank of your public places. Yeah, and what we do incentivizes people to clean up their syringes and bring them back to us. So we provide a reason for people to properly dispose of their syringes where otherwise they might feel pretty careless about leaving them wherever. Well, I'm just, I'm putting my, my mind of, it's just, it's a leap. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an addict, but I'm thinking in the fog of being an addict and all that. So are they, they're, they're interacting with you. They're, they're benefiting from your replacing them. Uh, they're, t you're taking a dirty needle, one that they've used, giving them a clean one. So do they, it's not like they're going to be your sort of uh, word of mouth kind of people, but do you find though that, do they, does it transplant to other addicts? So you, they are telling each other about your, I mean, I wonder how that part works. Uh, I would most definitely, I, I'd say that the needle exchange is more than just syringes as well. These are people who have been marginalized by our society in every way imaginable. And just knowing that there is a group of people who genuinely care about their well-being is a very attractive thing. I mean, I when we were operating, I predominantly dealt with referrals, which meant that I would go into um, the encampment where homeless people were or in other locations just to, to talk to people, see what they genuinely needed. And that was something that I think was far more valuable to them than the syringe itself, was just knowing that oh, somebody okay. cared. Mm -hmm. yeah. Somebody cared about their well-being and wanting them to be healthy. And that word spreads. And I think we... <laughs> pretty often heard um, from people that it was the one time in their entire week where somebody asked how they were doing and actually cared about the answer. And so treating people with that type of humanity and dignity and making a real personal connection is central to what we do yet yeah, beyond the syringes. Well, I, I didn't see this coming. It's a little a personal <laughs> uh, encounter or lack of an encounter I had last Saturday. I was on the metro rail leaving the covering the march downtown Los Angeles. And there was a guy was just pitched over in the metro rail seat, and he was vomiting on the train car, and it, and then I thought, oh well, we've got because when it, when the train stops, then that's the vomit rolls around on the the car. It's going to spread. So, but the the guy got up at the the next stop, 
and he you know staggered and just sort of collapsed and all that but so i so we we are i mean somebody thought for sure this guy's having is vomiting some kind of bad drug uh, over you know uh, over dosing and so i i didn't know what was i'm not trained i don't know i i don't know i've got limits but you know what i didn't i was no good samaritan what what would you have done if you were in my position so that's an incredibly tough position to have been in and it's <laughs> be kind to yourself for the um for not knowing what no, to no, do. No, no, the guy but, was in harder shape than I'm with yeah. my not feeling kind about myself. Yeah. So um but so that's kind of it's tough to tell based on that description if it was um, Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, He'd just been intoxicated and and it doesn't sound to me initially um like an opiate overdose based on the descriptors um so I normally would have said like, yeah, hit him with the Narcan. You can't go wrong because when in doubt, better to try to save somebody with Narcan than not. Okay. Um, because so you can't file that away. Yeah, there's no possible um, or potential downside to um, if you think someone's having an overdose to going in with the Narcan. Um, people can't get high from it. There's no adverse side effects from it. Um, it's pretty much a fail safe, and that's why we are hoping that all of our law enforcement officers will be carrying Narcan and naloxone. Yeah. yeah, not not um, one dose, but multiple. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I would say that what you described doesn't seem like an opiate overdose, just because the ones that I've seen and how I've been trained with using naloxone, opiate overdoses generally unresponsiveness, um, slowed breathing, things like that are more telltale signs of an opiate overdose that sounds more like an alcohol intoxication the vomiting the stumbling yeah um if someone's overdosing on an opiate they're not moving okay well yeah. well there's a that's an a, a seminar that we can all file all of those things that we got out of that so okay I, I, so well in dealing with these myths, I imagine that's part of what's going on in the back of the mines, all the way to the front of the Orange County Board of Supervisors. So what were they saying in the, the last hearing where they decided to discontinue? Now, it was discontinued. It was closed in January, but there is an, a comment period that ended last week. So what's, what's the conversation? What's the County Board of Supervisors, what are their comments that need to be directly a- approached and taken apart and appealed to. So just to clarify, we Please. were stopped operating in January by Santa Ana City Council, not right. the Orange County Board of Supervisors. Okay. And in response of that, we filed a new uh, certification to operate from the California Department of Public Health, which would be in more cities in Orange County just in, just uh, rather than just Santa Ana. And that's where Supervisor Doe, on behalf of the Orange County Supervisors, put out a statement in opposition of our operation. And I think that it's important when we're thinking about what the Board of Supervisors is saying is separating the talking points from the real issues. So okay, heroin use or drug use is incredibly stigmatized in our society. We have an image of what a heroin user is, and that person is someone who makes bad choices, someone who is a bad person, who is inherently criminal, who is problematic to society. We view them as individuals who have failed society, whereas I have a different lens. I think they're individuals that society has failed. And when we listen to the things that he says, you know, these are addicts and we need to prioritize the well-being of residents in Orange County, 
it's just taking that one sentence apart shows us that they don't view the individuals who are addicted who live in Orange County as residents of Orange County, even though they very much are. So that's one thing. I think another thing is we're in election year and that obviously brings up um, issues on a political side because, uh, like I said, the stigma leads to people generally not associating with people who are addicted to drugs as people who deserve help. They deserve punitive action, punishment. And getting across the ideas of harm reduction are more complicated than saying, well, these are bad people. And if we get rid of them, then everything will be okay. Agreed. And um, I think our services have been completely intertwined in the eyes of the Board of Supervisors and probably the community writ large that um, the homelessness crisis that's occurring um, right now in Orange County and then yeah, the needle exchange. They're and happening the in tandem. They're happening in tandem. And while they are overlapping, um, they are not one in the same. And so we do serve and advocate for the homeless population because that is a large part of our clientele. But I feel like the... Um, the community also needs to realize that we are also serving their neighbors, we're serving their sons, um, we're serving their parents. And so our clientele is so diverse and we're serving Orange County residents, like Mahan said, um, who deserve the opportunity to get clean. And we've had the the privilege of seeing some of our clients um, recover and thrive. And so we want that for other members of our community. So for those of you who've just tuned in, my guests are Dallas Augustine, Ph.D. candidate and recent graduate, Mahan Nain, and they are both UCI students with the Orange County Needle Exchange Program. Let's then talk about uh, the, the up, any updates. Were there any public comments um, that, or a summary Some as their platform to distill what the public comments did and how that one can appeal. And I, talking about that, too, is I notice on Congresswoman in the 45th Congressional District, Mimi Walters, will she's got a loop going. She's always talking about opiate uh, abuse and that kind of thing. But um, So that's federal level. But So I don't know if we're, we can hold her accountable. If you're really dedicated to this proposition, you've got a role with the County Board of Supervisors to show leadership locally. So anyway, comments, comments, interactions, interjurisdictionally. So um, starting with the comments, we... At, in the final days, we haven't seen the comments yet, and I believe that when um, the CDPH answers with their authorization or not, um, that we will see the, the county actual... county Department of Public Health? Um, or the California, California, California at the state California. level. Yeah, yeah. Um, when they finally let us know if we've been authorized or not, that we'll see some of those. But we did hear that, that we got 300 comments of support, which is truly incredible for people to go out of their way to mail a letter of support for an organization. And so we're touched and very proud of the fact that there is that kind of community support despite what it often feels like it's purely opposition i would i just want to comment on the the mimi walters thing that was brought up which is that politicians tend to say a lot of things but not do many things and we had a president now donald trump who did run explicitly talking about the opiate epidemic but now if you look at his policies they're more towards criminalizing opiate use. I mean, this is a man who said that he would support the death penalty for people who are trafficking opiates. Punitive, not Punitive. rehabilitative. Again, yeah, this this goes back to punishment and scare tactics, not meeting people where they're at and understanding social causes of addiction. That there are a lot of things that lead to people who inject 
drugs. And I can say this from my own personal experience. I've dealt with clients at the needle exchange where when I talk to them about getting clean, I honestly have no good reason for them to get clean. I really don't. If someone is living under a bridge, has no social security, has a criminal record, can't get federal housing, can't get federal aid, has no family, no income, I completely understand. I don't justify, but I understand why he craves four hours of peace. Yeah. Yeah. So the Santa Ana was the city where the program was. It was discontinued, as we said, or closed, and therefore your your exchange programs closed. Correct. So then the recourse is for an addict who doesn't exactly jump into their uh, Lexus and say, okay, I'll go to L.A. for my clean needle. How does that work? So it's been pretty, pretty upsetting. We've heard on... One hand about the resilience of our clients, where we um, we heard that 19 of them banded together and pooled all of their money that they had raised in various ways, and they sent one person on the bus all the way to the closest needle exchange in East LA, Bienestar, who we're very grateful for. Um, where is it? It's in East LA. It's, what is the name of it? It's called Bienestar. Bienestar. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's a beautiful example of the resilience where. They had one person go and do all of this for them. So that person would bring in their, their 19 needles and bring 19 clean ones back? Is that how that works, that accounting? Or however many. Or, or um, how many this needle for needle. So I, you didn't have to, it's not, what, it's not the number of people, but the number of needles. It's an exchange, one for one. Correct, okay, yeah. Okay, so that was, one, that was one shot, though. That was so one they're, shot. So they're going to have to pool more money to go in out of county. Or San Diego County also has a needle exchange program, yes. correct? So Orange County is this sort of the segment out of participating in this. Yes. And then um, I also want to share that on the opposite side, a little bit bleaker, is that some of our regulars we've um, seen recently and they've told us that they're reusing the same needle. It's been weeks and they just continue to reuse the same needle. And so abscesses and wounds are getting worse. Sometimes they're sharing with their partners or other friends. And so it's Everything that we are trying to stop is happening in our absence. Um, and so their risk of spreading bloodborne disease like HIV or Hep C is rapidly increasing. Their medical risks because of their abscesses and wounds are rapidly increasing. So on one hand, we do see this beautiful resilience and community still thriving, but we also see this desperation in our absence. It doesn't, I mean, the pooling is, yeah, it's just a one-shot deal. I can't, I'm just trying to figure out what... Since it was discontinued in, it was a half a year ago, this is, these infections are mounting. Yeah, I, I know they, these are not things that I've heard from recent operation because also I think it's important to note that when we are shut down, this is a population that is difficult to get in touch with. Um, and this type of work to build what we had takes a long time and a lot of trust building and a lot of faith in each other and it goes back to what we were talking about about how words spread about us and it spreads through word of mouth and people coming and seeing the exchange and a place being actually caring and we lost that when they shut down but these are things that i'd heard prior to us being stopped from operating um people would use syringes amongst groups of four or five people for upward of a month and that just sounds obscene it is obscene i mean there is there is no logical reason for why that is a good idea 
it's a nece- it's a necessity. Someone is meeting the need with whatever They're, little the means they yeah, have. Feet, yeah. And it's not uncommon. I've heard people use two pennies to sharpen needles or, or the back of a matchbox before passing them with other people who need to use. And another thing that I think is important to note here is that heroin addiction is not something that you can just not have a needle and then stop. Heroin addiction leads to withdrawal, which can be fatal, can literally kill you if you withdraw from heroin. Yeah. Well, I'd like to close with how people can follow you and is there some sort of a hotline? Any what, whatever kind of social media handles people can watch you posting some sort of late breaking kinds of observations. Yeah, so we're on all of the um, major social media platforms. In what name? Um, so on Instagram, we are OC underscore NEP. Um, on Twitter, we are um, Orange County NEP. And then Facebook, if you'd just search for either OCNEP or the Orange County Needle Exchange Program, will pop right on up. And then Mahan um, has the info about our hotline. Yes, please yeah. do. So we have uh, our website, too, OCNEP.org, and our phone number is on there. It's a voicemail only, but if you give us a call and leave a voicemail, I'll be happy to call you back. I'm the person who monitors it. So, right, you've, you've updated it. So when we go to the website, we can see that you're closed. As far as on the street activity, but your organization is functioning and posting and mobilizing. Right. So, what's I mean? Do you see that there? Uh, what What's going to be the next likely step to returning to this program in Orange County? And that's when we got to wrap this whole thing. So, um, if all goes well, hopefully in about a month we will hear back positively from the CDPH. Um, and so we'll be reauthorized and then we'll be cruising around in our van um, providing harm reduction services in Orange, Santa Ana, Anaheim, and Costa Mesa, hopefully by around September. Okay. Well, that's that's going to have to be it. Thank you for so much. My guests were Dallas Augustine, PhD candidate, and recent graduate Mahan Naeem, UCI students here with the Orange County Needle Exchange Program. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thanks a lot. And, every, and all the best. C- good luck on, on returning into your, your full function there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, the uh, announcement really quick is a uh, Bites of Code. It's a summer camp. You can ask questions at djr at uci.edu for the camp this summer in August uh, for ninth, let's see, seventh to ninth graders, uh, girls. That was my wrap. Next week, I'll have on UCI law school professor Rick Hassan, the man we go to about all the fast-breaking developments dealing with the U.S. Supreme Court, and there are many of those. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and the pursuit of happiness in that declaration, that's for everybody, by the way. Bye-bye.